Our loving Father, we praise you for the joy of being together. We praise you for the refreshment of worship. We praise you for your faithfulness and your provision. We praise you for your spirit that revives us. We praise you for Jesus. And we ask in his name and by his power, by his desire for us to be one with you as he is one with you, we ask that Jesus would be our sole focus, that our minds and our hearts and our paths might be changed. Father, there's a temptation to pray for even just a small change, but because you are a God of abundance and because you are a God who is so able to change us and to save us, I pray that um, each one of us, whether it's from the worship that has already taken place, the music, the uh, stirring announcements, the Sabbath school classes, or just a, a, an interaction with a family member here at church, a church member, whether it be any part of the service, we just ask again in Jesus' name that we would be changed into your likeness, having been together in this way. In, in your son's name, amen. Okay, God's pursuit of us. The pursuit of God um, for man happens to be one of my favorite topics. I'm praying for clarity on it, but specifically the way that um, he uses uh, his scripture to stir our hearts. Now, of course, our minds can be stirred and our spiritual beings can, but um, you've heard it said before at Kingscliff Church, scripture is ultimately a love story and love involves the heart. So before I go to the first slide, I want to turn to a favorite chapter. It's in John 5. And I just wanted to uh, bring this up by way of introduction um, to an Old Testament story. And John chapter 5 happens to be a personal favorite of mine. Actually, the Gospel of John is my favorite gospel. And that's probably simply because of the poetic first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Um, My heart is stirred with that. In chapter 5 of John, verse 39, it says this. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I return to this one over and over again as a check to a desire to diligently know the scriptures. Do I study scripture to be an authority on scripture? Does my church and denomination focus on Bible study and the study of scripture to know well the scriptures, or is it deeper than that? Is it a longing to have life in the one that the scriptures testify about? So with that in mind, uh, too fast there, we're going to look at a story in Genesis chapter 16. It's the story of Hagar. And the other character, God pursues this love and action. I believe that this particular story shows God's pursuit as being very, very active, very like this, very, very present. It is not an announcement of information that might be on a billboard on a highway. It is instead a pursuing love, a pursuing action that is intended on relational connection. 
So this story that we're told from the Gospel of John, Scripture is about testifying about Jesus. This story testifies about Jesus who is love in the flesh, and it shows that this is a pursuing love. Now, uh, in Genesis 21, a few chapters forward, there's a kind of a retake on this chapter. I won't take the time to go over that one this morning. In Genesis chapter 21, Sarai's name has been changed to Sarah, um, which happens to be my own name. So it just naturally, even from being a young girl, you're drawn to a Bible character that happens to have your name if you were named um, and have a Hebrew name or um, something that's found in Scripture. In this chapter, her name hasn't been changed yet. It's Sarai. If I wanted a warning about what not to become, things to be cautious about, although uh, Scripture does say that Sarah um, had a, a, a strong faith um, and, and was actually a model of faith, so much of her behavior in this story and in Genesis 21 is a cautionary tale. She's a blamer. She plays the victim. She's disrespectful to her husband, and she really mistreats um, another woman. Uh, starting at verse 1, let's see if this follows. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Hagar's name is debated. You couldn't really say for sure that we know what it is, but more than one commentary will state that there's a good chance that it came from a root word of fleeing, and you'll see why that connects to the story. Either way, uh, the God-pursuing theme and a heart that's um, in flight fit really, really well, so we'll look at the theme of fleeing. Egyptian maidservant, if you read the chapters before chapter 16, there will be a story of when um, Abram took Sarai Sarai to um, the land of Egypt and told that partial truth, that lie about him being her sister. So they were in the land of Egypt. Perhaps that's where um, Hagar became part of their clan. Um, So she said, Sarai, uh, Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children, tendency to cast blame on circumstances in life. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Uh, here, this uh, wife of the father patriarch Abraham decides that she uh, needs to take it on herself to make the promises of God um, come true. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Again, with the blaming, I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between me and you. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled. We are changed We aren't changed by mere information. We are changed in the exchange of story. So here we have 
Scripture's testifying about Jesus and that his way is is life. And there's a story about a woman. There's some details here that maybe you don't want to read in front of children. And you wish... uh, It's not a happy story before bedtime. It's messy. It's messy like our lives, full of relational dysfunction and abuse. And so she fled. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. So here comes love in action. Our pursuing God. Here's an unlikely candidate for the angel of the Lord to appear before and begin speaking In her distress, in the situation of her abuse, in the mess of family dysfunction, in the mess of broken promises and expectations going awry, the angel of the Lord finds Hagar near a spring in the desert. This story happens to remind me a little bit of Jesus and the woman at the well. The grace and the mercy of our Lord showing himself in Scripture to be one who loves to appear and speak and nurture to the woman who has been mistreated and cast aside and even used. And he said, Hagar, servant at Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? I've shared with you before. I've shared in my class. I've shared with my kids. It's becoming a little bit of my... um, Um, my own sort of chorus that I want to share and and hope that a few people will grasp onto it, God will continually be asking you and me and all of those who he longs to be saved, every heart who hasn't been exposed to him, he will lovingly and full of mercy ask us, where are you? Where are you going? This is the heart of of our intimacy with him. He calls us into truth first. Even before he proclaims who he is, though his action and appearing um, are present, he asks us to engage and to reveal to him where we believe we are at and who we think we are. The other loving thing that God does as he pursues, and this is one that I'm working on. I'm not a names person. I'm not a face person. I'm kind of a story person. So if you tell me a good story, I likely remember, oh, that's the woman with the fantastic story about. But here he calls Hagar by name. And when we love each other, we know each other's name, and we want to know where we are in life and where we're going. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Here are some um, problems that perhaps our children may experience, or are teens, or maybe if you're new to the pursuit of God, here are a series, just three, that I think are represented in the story of Hagar that are common to the human experience. 
I don't yet know or see God. So before Hagar has the voice encounter with the angel of the Lord, she's fleeing abuse. She's fleeing the dysfunction of um, a household and a family that is taking into their own hands the promises of God and misrepresenting his will and his expectation. And she's on her own. And perhaps it would be fair to say, I do not yet know or see God. And sometimes our children, our youth, they'll sit in a service like this, and they'll go to camps, and they'll stand up when the music's playing, but if you had time to really hear and reflect on their heart, they might just say, here's the thing, I don't mind it, and I get that my parents do this, and I'm willing to go, but I don't yet know or see God that way. And there might be another reason that they don't yet know or see God. The really kind and helpful crew in the back this morning said, oh, something's wrong with your formatting. Um, but actually, that this was just an example here. I wanted to see if anyone could unscramble those last three. Um, sometimes we can't yet see or know God, not so much just because we're going through the motions at church, but just because the mess like Hagar, is so extreme, our spiritual life and our spiritual desires are really quieted. So we have confusion, mess, dysfunction. These are things that would clutter someone's experience of God. So if you have a family member who doesn't yet know God, and maybe there's a little bit of a a tendency to maybe resent or to judge, because I've set the example. It seems so obvious to me. I see God everywhere. What are they thinking? Life is short. How come they just can't come to an understanding of what he has to offer? This might be part of the reason for it. Confusion, mess, dysfunction, codependence, addiction, blaming. What's the next one? Control. Power, struggle. Anyone know the last one? Isolation, that's right. I don't yet know or see God. Here's another one. This is big. Um, I don't feel worthy of being pursued. Hagar would not have felt worthy of being pursued by the Almighty God. Even Abraham, the father of her future son, Abram said, do with you as you please. There would be no relational sense for her to think that the God that Abram and Sarai are worshiping would care about her. The way that they set up and reflected his pursuing love was completely missing. So she didn't feel worthy of being pursued. And some of us, and this for sure is not just our young children, but many of us at different stages of life have lost vibrancy in our connection and our intimacy with God simply because we have confused messages of humility and service, important messages. We have confused those messages as being the same as the entire goal of my Christianity is going to be to be as quiet and as in the background as I possibly can. I, I will not ask him for too much. I will just pray for others. I will let others teach me. I, I am not worthy of more pursuit. And this is what is called shame. 
the study of shame is super popular right now, for sure in the United States. I'm assuming that that's happening here in Australia as well. Um, there are many different teachers and psychologists, but also uh, people in um, personal development space and certainly our churches beginning to recognize that until we deal with the issue of shame, our capacity to really influence others with any message is limited and tied up into this. Uh, This particular, I haven't just done something wrong, I am something wrong, is an example of how shame works. So guilt, even a healthy guilt, our conscience working will say, oh, I've done something bad. And then maybe we'll go another step. I've done something wrong or an error, and I don't want to do that again. That's our design. But shame says I am something wrong, and I'm going to just keep doing other things wrong. And when we're really enclosed in the message of shame, the chances of us being open to particularly mass, massive amounts, massive is maybe the wrong word, but sometimes it feels like that, uh, the chances of us being open to large quantities of biblical information when we're in shame it's just not going to happen. People in sh- who are in shame need windows of opportunity to see themselves in a new way, to see themselves as valuable, to see themselves as known, to see that other people know their name and know who they are and where they're going, and that maybe someone else also lives with confusion and codependence and addiction and chaos. So shame... Hagar would have not felt worthy of the angel of the Lord, and her response will show us that. Here's the next one. I don't feel. It's not just that I don't yet know or see God or that I'm feeling shame, unworthiness, but it's just that I don't feel. And the word for this is grief. Grief. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that one of the things that we could do to serve our family of God, to serve each other in the church, is to become comfortable with expressing in a vulnerable way, which means to take a risk. It doesn't mean to just say everything with no discretion, but vulnerability in our relationships means to take a risk of someone not understanding us, to have courage to be heard about our grief. Because here's the thing. Grief is a silencer. It will silence our praise. It will silence our prayers. It will silence our communication of need. And grief is just a real human experience. Hagar had reason to grieve. She was alone and with child. She was in an abusive situation. Her grief was legitimate, but yet would keep her from healthy relationship if a loving God with active pursuit didn't show up for her in that moment. Grief. I'm so comfortable with highlighting and underlining this again, even though it might only be three or four people in this room. But if you are years in or decades in to a feeling that my spiritual life is not what it should be. 
I have lost the hunger for the things of God. I'm going through the motions of devotion and prayer and scripture uh, reading and attending church. But the truth is, I don't feel anything. I am numb. If that is your experience, you may decide that you're not just doing something wrong, but you are something wrong. You may quickly leave grief, which is just an unavoidable human natural state, part of being in a broken world. We will grieve. We will grieve loss of our children. We will grieve loss of our unborn children. We will grieve broken relationships. We will need to grieve abusive relationships. We must grieve. It's part of the process. But if we stay in that state and are not seen, then we miss being seen by the one who's actively pursuing us. So the solution to, of course, the solution to the feeling that I do not yet know or see God, or I feel unworthy of a supernatural pursuit of my heart, or I don't feel, I I just don't have that going on. The solution, of course, is Jesus. He sees, he knows, he names, he is with us. I love this passage of scripture because it shows us that God called Hagar by name and he does that over and over to his people and his children. And we tell our children, he knows you by name. But he also names the realities of our heart. So he's the one that we can turn to and say, as Jesus as our solution, I don't know how to even begin to feel again. I don't know how to make sense out of the power struggle and confusion and chaos and mess in my own life. And he will not just bring peace and comfort, which if you're new to church and maybe new to speaking grief, there are some quick answers that church uh, family members will give us. Count it all joy. Pray without ceasing. Let him carry your burdens. Jesus will name yes and amen to all of those things, but Jesus will name our pain and our um, trial much more specifically. He will name and call us into, no, Sarah, actually, it's self-protection that you are weighted down by. The more that you protect your heart and resist sharing with others, the less anyone else is ever going to know or see you. And if I created you to contain my spirit, to have other people know love in the flesh, you're going to have to trust me to protect your heart and release. Or maybe he will say, oh, I want to name your particular situation. You're weighted down by ambition. You think that this is normal because it's your role as a husband or a provider to steward well and use your gifts, but the truth is you still have a portion of your heart to release to me And let me be your ultimate prize. So he names it. He's our solution. He names our shame, our guilt, our grief, the dysfunction and mess, even when others 
would prefer not to discuss that darkness. And then, of course, he's the solution. Because just like with Hagar, he is with us in pain. He doesn't wait for us to feel the highs and the hope. He joins us in the darkest, unspeakable moments. How will I respond? Okay, so I want to get to the part of the text that's my absolute favorite of of Genesis 16. Here's why I even wanted to open this story. And it starts um, at verse 13. She, Hagar, gave the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Let me get that again. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. She gave a name to the Lord. This excites me so much, this concept that the God of the universe, the creator of our hearts and our flesh, the one who makes Jesus who saves, he so does everything first, right? He loves us, and then we are able to love. Out of his forgiveness, we are able to forgive. His strength and his spirit allow us to move from glory to glory, and this is it. He names, not just calls Hagar by name, but also names her son Ishmael. And then she responds by giving the Lord Almighty a name. And what a beautiful name it is. Chances are it's not one that you pray um, on a regular basis, but I'd really recommend try this one. You are the God who sees me. If we start our time on our knees with that sentence... Dear God, you are the God who sees me. That name is not conditional on any circumstance. In fact, when we are most broken, that name of God, that one will give us the courage to keep going because we're not alone. We're not in isolation. We are seen by God. I had the kids write down names for God. I'm pretty excited about this concept too. There is um, inspiration that An individual can um, stir up just by making a list of all the names of God and his characteristics. If you always pray a certain way, our Heavenly Father, dear Jesus, I highly recommend that you make your own list. And just to keep things in that new song spirit, fresh intimacy with the Lord, if you try my rock and my shield, my Redeemer, the Lord who dances over me, my strength, warrior of my heart, Jesus, redeemer, rabbi, teacher. These words, these names, the word became flesh, love in flesh. They matter, they stir us, we're designed that way. When Hagar heard her own name from the powerful supernatural being, she declared even in her still vulnerable and uncertain state, she gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. God has been named by a very unlikely candidate to name God, Hagar, a maidservant from Egypt, mistreated by the mother and father of the Jewish faith, she's the one who declares, he's the one who sees me. And he's the one who sees us and sees our daughters and our children. How will I respond? 
when I have gotten past the confusion, it will come again. But there is a time when there's freedom from what Jesus has to offer and freedom from the gospel. And there's clarity in the scriptures that testify him. When I begin to see God, then I begin to know him. And then I move to this state like Hagar where I can name God and I can be with God. And then it doesn't stop there because our relationships with God, as beautiful and connected as they're designed to be, are always meant to put us into relationship with others. So then we're free to see others, to know others, to know others by name, and to be with others. How will you respond to the heart of God? You are seeing God, she said. Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Let's pray to the one who sees us. Pursuing loving God, the scriptures have revealed your son Jesus to us. They are those words that testify that love is alive and with us and near and in us through Jesus. They are the same scriptures that declare that we are no longer just servants but friends of the living God. We praise you for being the one who sees us and calling us your family and your people. We praise you for being in full pursuit of our hearts and the healing answer to shame. We praise you for giving us the gift of life and the nobility of breath and connection with you. Thank you for in you we move and breathe and have our being. Thank you also, Father, that you are the answer to our grief, that you sit with us in it, that you never leave us alone and you see us in the midst of the dark and the mess and the confusion. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for any person in this room who has had a weightiness and a heaviness and a block from the fullness of joy that we were designed to have, that perhaps today you are nudging and saying, dear one, you've been grieving. Grief will end. Give it to me. You don't need to be ashamed. Instead, let me see you and name you afresh. Father, we love you. We love your pursuit of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.